and welcome to Flash Forward. I'm Rose, and I am your host. Flash Forward is a show about the future. Every episode, we take on a specific possible, or sometimes not so possible, future scenario. We always start with a little field trip into the future to check out what is going on, and then we teleport back to today to talk to experts about how that world that we just heard might actually go down. Got it? Great. This episode, we are starting in the year 2064. Oh, and there is one curse word in this episode, just FYI. Okay, on to the future. Welcome to the 34th Annual Cedar Ideas Festival. My name is Naomi Jackson, and I am so excited to have you all here. As you might know, my day job is editing the Pacific Magazine, which brings you complex perspectives on big ideas. For the magazine, we spend a lot of time thinking about big why questions. Why did this happen? Why is our country set up the way it is? Why are some people happy or unhappy? Why do we make the choices we make as both individuals and as a collective? And when it comes to not just understanding behavior, but shaping it, there is no one more experienced, more impactful, more visionary than our keynote speaker. Dr. Sandra Bowles has spent over 50 years developing and shaping iconic campaigns that have really shifted the course of history. From Gucci to SpaceX to the CDC, For decades, she was anonymous, known in the industry simply as SB, a mysterious genius who would swoop in to solve problems and deliver perfect, groundbreaking campaigns. Today, she's a professor emeritus at Howard University and consults for national governments, high-impact brands, and international superstars. And tonight, she's here to give us a glimpse into how her mind works and what it takes to shift the narrative Please join me in welcoming Dr. Bowles. Thank you. Thank you for that lovely introduction, Naomi. It's an honor to be here. I admit I'm still getting used to being a named figure. It's lovely, of course, to be recognized, but there is something quite nice about anonymity, too, along with it being a nice marketing strategy, of course. When Naomi asked me to come and talk about my work, I wasn't quite sure what to say, but her framing of why do people make choices resonated with me. Because really, when you think about advertising, it's all about convincing people to make the choices you want them to make. And I use that word, convincing, not tricking, not forcing, not bribing, convincing. If you want your campaign to really work in the long run, you have to convince someone to do something, whether that's buying a coat or washing their hands. Convincing someone requires knowing why they don't want to do whatever it is you want them to do. What is the dialogue in their head saying, "Eh, you don't need this? What does the little angel on their shoulder say to them to rebut you? You have to know that. You have to figure it out. And if you get that wrong, you're never going to succeed. 
Let me give you an example. Early in my career, after I'd made a name for myself here and there as someone who had big ideas and who could pull them off, I was handed a really big challenge. It was 2035 and things were dark. Everybody was getting sick. I'm sure you remember. People were sick and they were tired. Tired of being sick. Tired of listening to public health instructions go back and forth and back and forth. We had just come out of a back-to-back -back pandemic. We thought we were in the clear and that we could finally go back to normal. Hug our friends, have parties, sing karaoke. We all wanted the scientists to just take a break, take a day off or something. Meanwhile, their messaging was all muddled up. It was bad, but not a pandemic, or at least not the same kind, right? People were dying and catching whatever this was and giving it to each other, but not like the last time. It was confusing. I think of myself as a smart person, and I was confused. And also tired of constantly being afraid of stuff that I didn't understand, that scientists didn't understand. And so I ignored them. A lot of us did. Here's what the CDC PSAs looked like at the time. Remember to keep you and your family safe by reducing contact with surfaces that someone else might have come into contact with in the last 17 minutes. We can all do our part by following public health recommendations. Do you remember these? I remember ignoring them. And then I got a call from Atlanta, from the head of the CDC, who basically said, we need your help to save millions of people's lives. And I mean, how do you say no to an ask like that? So I flew down to Atlanta and I figured out what we needed to convince people to do. And it was actually all about convincing people to not do something. No touching. And this was the confusing part, right? For so long, it was don't be around people. Don't breathe in their germs. But now it was slightly different. You can be near them, but don't touch. Touching is the problem. Hang out all you like, scream all you like, but don't hug. No skin contact. How do you convince people to stop touching each other, stop touching the world around them? Well, first you have to get them to even think about touch in the first place, right? I mean, before all of this, remember, this was 2035, people would touch pretty much anything. I know it sounds bizarre now, but you remember that, don't you? Or maybe you're all too young. But we touch everything. We'd shake strangers' hands. We picked up fruit in the store just to touch it and then put it down again. Nobody cleaned the handrails. How do you convince people to stop doing something they don't even realize they're doing? I decided to start with the touching that we think about, the intimate, sexy stuff. That's where we started. So we released this ad campaign.
make touch matter again. That was our whole goal. Making touch this really specific thing that we think about and really consider before we do it. Then, once people were thinking about touch, we made probably the more famous posters where every surface is covered in spikes. Maybe you remember them. Convincing someone that something can hurt you is hard if you can't see it. And then our final campaign was aspirational because if you're going to convince people to give something up, you have to give them something in return. And that something can't just be safety. I mean, who cares, right? You have to give them something to aspire to, to want. And so we worked with Prada to create this incredible line of gloves. And really, gloves are so much easier to make cool than masks. So I had it easy. But we wanted them to have that combination of old school vintage fashion and modern, more streetwear kind of flair to them. So here's an early sketch of the gloves, a prototype. And then eventually we got to these. And this is the campaign that you might remember. So now, I'm curious, how many of you in the audience are wearing gloves? <laughs> yeah, wow, okay, yeah, most of you. And this was really the first campaign I worked on that had a kind of global implication and that you could see the impacts of in a real way. People did stop touching stuff. I mean, you probably don't touch stuff now because of this campaign, if I may brag a bit. Rates of touching went down 85%, and with it, incidences of sickness and death went down. I mean, that's a dream come true for any designer, right? To literally save lives with your silly little ad campaign. So that was my first big success. And I learned a lot from it that I used for future campaigns. If you'll indulge me in those examples too. So today we are talking about touch and specifically what would happen if we had to give it up. Over the last year or so, a lot of people around the world have experienced a sudden shrinking of their world. And I have spent a lot of time in the last few weeks thinking about how in the early days of the pandemic, a lot of us were focused on sort of the wrong things, right? Specifically, we spent a lot of time talking about cleaning surfaces. People on social media are taking pictures of themselves sanitizing their groceries. Yeah, with the reports of where it can live on and how long it can live on these different surfaces, like no one just knows what they can trust. I'm certainly wiping down those surfaces of those milk containers or cans or anything is, is not a bad idea. It turns out that's not generally necessary. This is a respiratory virus. In order for a respiratory virus to infect a host, it has to get into their respiratory tract. The easiest way for that to happen is by breathing it in, inhaling it in, or potentially touching it um, or getting splashing into your respiratory tract. 
This is Dr. Angela Rasmussen, a virologist currently working at the Georgetown Center for Global Health, Science, and Security, but soon to be the head of her own lab up at the University of Saskatchewan. Now, you can get COVID-19 from touching stuff. The virus does live on surfaces. There was a guy who got into an elevator, blew his nose into his hand, and then touched a button on the elevator, um, getting snot or, you know, snot all over. Actually, snot was the term they used in the paper. Getting snot all over uh, that, that elevator button. A little while later, somebody else got in the same elevator. Um, they, they couldn't find another way that he had been exposed. And of course, he got SARS coronavirus too. And so it was assumed that by touching that snot-covered, virus-covered elevator button, that he got virus on his hands, and then he probably touched his nose or his mouth and uh, became infected. Yes, you did indeed hear that correctly. This person blew their nose into their bare hand and then touched an elevator button with that hand. The thing I've learned is that people are, people are just gross. Um, and it's not just little kids, but people can be really gross. <laughs> but looking back at news stories and tweets from about a year ago, I started thinking about what it would be like if there was some kind of really deadly disease that was only transmitted by touch. Something that you couldn't get simply by being near someone, but you could get if you touched them. What if we could never touch each other or our world the same way again? How could we convince people to stop touching stuff? You heard about that in the intro. Oh, and those ad campaigns that you heard about in the intro, I actually commissioned an amazing designer to make those posters real, and you can find them in the blog post for this episode at flashforwardpod.com. So the first thing we have to figure out for this future is what exactly this disease is. And to figure this out, we have to understand how diseases actually enter your body in the first place. Most infectious diseases, most bacteria and viruses, they can't just absorb into your body through your skin. The surface of your skin is essentially a mat of dead skin cells that are full of this protein keratin. And that actually forms a, a pretty solid barrier. The other reason is that they are dead. Um, so viruses are obligate parasites, and they have to have a living host cell to replicate in. Um, they can't infect, really, a dead cell. Uh, they, well, they, they could maybe infect and gain entry to a cell that had just recently died, but they wouldn't be able to productively replicate in that and establish an infection. They need an easier entry point, an unprotected route into your body. Your eyes, your nose, the inside of your mouth— vaginas, uh, rectums, um, all those sensitive orifices of your body that don't have that, that tough layer of dead keratinized skin cells on the surface. That's why those are, are good routes uh, for a pathogen to gain entry. Is there a virus, bacteria, something that is truly only transmitted by touch? Obviously, there are like fungal infections that you can get on your skin that seem to be from that. But like when you think about just contact transmission, like what are the first things that come to mind? Yeah. So this is a complicated question. It's deceivingly complicated because um, I can't think of any that are transmitted just by touch, meaning that 
your skin cells are going to get infected with the virus that comes into contact with them. You can certainly get some viruses if you have, say, a cut on your hand and you touch uh, a source of virus. Um, there are many viruses, bloodborne viruses like hepatitis C virus, for example, that are transmitted mostly these days by injection, uh, injecting drug use here in the U.S. Um, or you know, HIV is another one that can be transmitted parenterally, basically through exposure to blood. Um, but you know, somebody with an intact like skin um, is not going to necessarily be susceptible to that just by touch. There are some viruses, um, and, and this is where this gets complicated, like say norovirus. Everybody knows about norovirus. Um, it's incredibly infectious, and you can get that from basically being exposed by breathing, by exposing your oral mucosa to those virus particles. Um, and that's why it spreads like wildfire through cruise ships and shared bathrooms and things like that. You can also get it by touch, but it's not getting in through your skin. Some viruses live on surfaces for way longer than others. So things like herpes and uh, smallpox virus. Um, those were transmitted by fomites or thought to be transmitted by fomites because their genome is very stable. Herpes and smallpox have DNA genomes, whereas something like this current coronavirus has an RNA genome. The RNA genome itself um, can be very easily destabilized. It can be degraded very quickly by either environmental conditions like temperature changes. Uh, it can be um, degraded by RNases or ribonucleases, enzymes that degrade RNA that exist ubiquitously in the environment. Thankfully, we know how to treat most herpes infections, and we have a vaccine for smallpox. I would say that we should be glad that our forebears um, we're all vaccinated against smallpox because that's certainly something that, that was transmitted by fomites. But of course, it's hard to look back at some of the things that were transmitted by touching a rail, like smallpox, which is incredibly lethal and horrible disease, and you don't want to get smallpox because our hygiene standards have changed drastically. Our, our cleanliness standards have changed drastically. So to figure out what this potential nasty thing could be, I did a deep dive and I came up with this whole long list to ask Angela about. So uh, fungal infections, no, those mostly get into your body through the air. Uh, prions, like mad cow disease, those are terrifying, but no, not transmitted by touch. You know, there's a reason why, like, the entire world that, that does eat beef is not dying of mad cow disease. I mean... Prions, like, it's real bad if you get a prion disease, no question. Um, but you're not likely to get one. Helminths or botflies are also very gross, but probably not going to become a pandemic. In doing this research, I also learned about something called cutaneous anthrax, which is a bacterial infection that you see in people who handle animals and leather workers. So cutaneous anthrax actually doesn't just cause anthrax when it gets on your skin. It's getting into like some kind of cut or rash. Like you have to have some kind of breach of skin barrier integrity in order to get cutaneous anthrax. When you get it, it sucks. Um, it, it looks horrible, but you aren't going to get cutaneous anthrax just from 
handling anthrax spores if you don't have any cuts or, uh, or rashes on your skin. Basically, it's really hard to think of something that could become a big global pandemic, but that was only transmitted by touch. If it was something that you could get just by absorbing it through the skin, then I don't know. Honestly, we'd, <laughs> we'd be fucked. <laughs> but uh, I, think that, I think that that's very unlikely. Now, that doesn't mean you should stop washing your hands. The thing about infectious diseases is that they're not playing interdimensional chess here. Viruses don't think about anything. They don't have brains. They're not sentient. They are just little machines, basically, that are are trying to make new viruses because that's what they're programmed to do. And they don't really care um, whether they're flying through the air, whether they're floating in the air, or whether they're on a surface. If they find a cell that they can infect, they're going to infect it just because they've been programmed to do so. Most diseases can be transmitted in more than one way. Take the current coronavirus pandemic. Yes, most of the cases are of airborne transmission, but again, you can definitely still get it from touching a surface and then touching your face. You should wear a mask and wash your hands. But this is Flash Forward, and we don't necessarily have to stick to the rules of reality. So Let's say that we do live in this future with this sort of mythical disease that spreads only by touch. So you can be around people all you like. You can stand next to them, be in the same room as them, but you just can't touch them or really touch anything. Angela says that overall, the public health recommendations would probably be kind of similar to what we've seen in the last year. You know, people would wear masks that would keep people's hands away from their faces Um, People would socially distance. I guess they wouldn't have to worry about ventilation um, if it was just uh, via close contact transmission. Along with masks, we might also wear gloves around all the time. Now, a few years ago, we talked on this very show about the rise of face masks as a fashion item in the future. And frankly, I maybe should have invested in face masks then because we were way ahead of the curve. Um, And in this future, the preventative accessory would probably be gloves. Fancy gloves, streetwear gloves, branded gloves, specialized gloves that actually fit you if you have small hands like me. Would you buy Flash Forward gloves? Should I not miss my chance again this time? Probably I will miss it and we will see. Personally, I would love that. Like I I love all those old movies where people are wearing like elbow length gloves. Um, I would, I would absolutely adore uh, gloves to make a comeback. But Angela also says that we should remember the role of things like masks and gloves in public health. They are one piece of the puzzle. They're not magical barriers. I think that there's still a lot of opportunity for, for those types of PPE to become useless if they're not made out of the right materials, if they're not fitted properly, they're not worn in the right circumstances, they're not changed enough. So I'd be I'd be perfectly content with people just having more consciousness about hand hygiene, about keeping commonly touched surfaces clean and disinfected. More important than cool gloves, if we really want to prevent the next pandemic, whether it's about touching things or not, we need to also have things like paid sick leave so people who aren't feeling good can actually stay home. Public health has to weigh a lot of different considerations, and not all of them are biological. Many of them are cultural, and how people react and interact with each other. 
maybe we all just evolve into like um, avatars and all the people's bodies go somewhere else. But first, a quick break. Okay, so we're in this future where we can't really touch anything without risking contracting some deadly disease. So the first thing that would probably happen once we figured out that touch was the transmission method is fire. I think people would go to the place of of destroying the objects. This is Dr. Katherine Kudlick, a historian and the director of the Paul K. Longmore Institute on Disability at San Francisco State University. So like during the plague years, they burned clothing, they burned mattresses, they fumigated. And you might, it might even lead to a new kind of airborne like problem if everybody's burning their mattresses and clothes that they've touched as a curative sort of thing. You, know, you got all the smoke and the whatever. But I think that would be the initial reaction. If you have ever had bed bugs, you might actually understand this impulse. If you have never had bed bugs, count your lucky stars or thank whatever God you believe in and knock on all the wood because, trust me, it is horrible. And you genuinely do want to burn down your entire apartment. Anyway, whatever we did not destroy in this future, we would try to clean. Sanitizing wipes and, you know, uh, sanitation locks and, and things like that. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? That you'd go through the ritual. We went through in the first weeks of COVID of, you know, like leaving your groceries outside and wiping them down and, and all of those things. But But I do think there would be a a tendency to just really throw stuff out. It might even change our relationship to stuff, you know? I also called Catherine because not only is she a historian of epidemics, she also has another expertise. Catherine also studies disability history and is legally blind. And I was thinking about blind people because if we're out there touching everything to see it, you know, that's not, you know, and you don't know how to keep six feet away or, you know, you can't confirm all the time that you're six feet away from another person. It seems to me that that's a kind of risky situation in an epidemic. And I called her because I was thinking about who would be the most impacted by a world in which you really shouldn't touch anything. Blind folks use touch in all kinds of really interesting and unique ways, but maybe the most famous is using touch to read. Historically, they learned uh, through touch. That was the alternative. And there were lots of different systems that were out there. I mean, before Louis Braille came along and perfected this system of reading with the six raised dots. If you've never watched someone read Braille fluently, I really recommend it because it is actually incredibly impressive. But unfortunately, Braille has kind of fallen out of favor. In fact, some estimates suggest that today, less than 10% of blind people actually read Braille. And that's because um, there's been an assumption that technology fills the gap, but also there's been cutbacks in education. And so the, the teachers that would have been teaching blind kids this, um, there's, they're a lot fewer and further bet- between. So they're mainstreamed in schools and there's no real critical mass of people all learning Braille once you have people dispersed in all these different schools. And then there's the shame factor because people view blindness as like this terrible thing. And if you have to resort to Braille, it's seen as this capitulation. Today, there are all kinds of technologies that people can use instead of Braille, but they don't actually fully replace the system. Oh, no, it's a terrible, terrible loss, because um, if you think about it, um, 
learning to read with your fingers um, if you can't see. That's the only thing, the only way you're going to learn how to spell and do punctuation. It's the only way you're going to learn basic grammar because if you're not seeing it, you're not going to hear it on a, a tape record, you know, on a, a voice recording or anything. You won't know what those words are. And you'll kind of, it's always interesting to me. I always know when I get a an email from a blind person that's never learned Braille because the spelling is absolutely atrocious. It's all phonetic and it's not their fault. It's what they know and what they learned and what they were exposed to. But it's it's heartbreaking because then it leads to um, lack of employment, um, lack of opportunities. All of these things kind of compound on each other. I mean, I even think, although your epidemic story aside, um, I think it would be really, really fabulous to be if everybody learned Braille. Wouldn't that be the coolest thing? You'd have this other arrow in your quiver um, to be like communicating and understanding and getting knowledge in into your body quite literally in ways other than through your eyes or your ears. I have actually tried to learn Braille in the past, and it is very, very hard. <laughs> But now I'm sort of inspired to try and pick it back up again because it really does feel like this sense that I haven't developed very well that is sort of going unused. So if anybody wants to learn Braille with me, uh, I don't know, head to the Flash Forward Facebook group and say hello. Maybe we can have like a little Braille learning club. Of course, losing touch would not just impact folks with visual impairments. I think there's a kind of a sense of touch that's really, really profound. And it goes into our hardwired selves to think of how we know know things. And, and really, it solidifies it, I think. And to get to your, probably anticipate one of your questions, I think if the sense of touch is jeopardized, it means that this certainty and this foundational grounding of the human body is taken away. And that's that's really, really tough. In fact, there is plenty of research that suggests that touch is really important for our human development and our health. Touch is definitely understudied um, as the first sense to develop in, in the fetus. Um, it's basically the, the skin is like an external nervous system. It, it's hard to imagine what it would be like to be without touch. This is Dr. Tiffany Field, the director of the Touch Research Institute at the University of Miami School of Medicine. And one of the questions I had for her was honestly kind of embarrassing, but it was, what counts as touch? Like, does it require skin-on-skin contact or just a certain amount of pressure or what? Apparently, there is no one official answer, but most of Tiffany's work defines touch by pressure and movement. So if you take your hand and you move it across your forearm such that the skin moves, that is activating enough of the receptors on your skin to make a difference. That occurs when you're being hugged. That occurs when you're getting a good handshake. That occurs when you're doing all kinds of different exercise. You're moving the skin. And um, what we found basically is that moderate pressure touch achieves all of the Uh, physical and psychological benefits that we've reported. These benefits include everything from keeping your immune system running better to pain reduction to better sleep. Right now, about 68% of Americans say they feel touch-deprived. We are not hugging our friends and family, bumping up against other people at a bar or a concert. 
or crammed into rides at amusement parks. And that's with a virus that is mostly airborne, mostly not transmitted through touch. In our theoretical future world of this episode, it would be even more severe. It's sort of ironic that during a period when we can't touch each other, when touch is so good for the immune system, and especially for uh, warding off viruses, here we are, we can't be touching. And this would be one of the biggest challenges in this future for public health recommendations. Anytime you're trying to figure out how to keep people safe during a pandemic, you have to think about not just the risk of the disease, but the risk of the recommendations, too. What happens when people can't, you know, hug their loved ones? That's Dr. Angela Rasmussen again. Some of these uh, interventions, like staying home and not seeing family members for months at a time, is very, very difficult. Keeping kids out of school long term is very, very difficult. And there are other you know, harms that that can occur from this. And so it's always going to be a conversation of risk-benefit analysis and trying to balance um, the benefits and harms of essentially sequestering people from one another. And I think that for something that was transmitted solely by direct physical contact with another person, you'd really be having an even larger discussion about the risks and benefits of interventions that would deprive people of physical human contact for a long period of time, um, at least until we could develop a vaccine. So if we actually had to give up touch for a while, we might try and find other ways to get this sensation safely. I mean, the other thing to think about is the role of pets and like whether pets would take on a new a new meaning, like, you know, we're going to pet our cats, we're going to breed for certain kinds of furs or, um, you know, kind of coats and, you know, that allows, do they transmit this this pathogen? So, or is that kind of, does that become our stand-in or, or even artificial something or others, you know, growing some weird plant that would like be the thing that everybody would want to touch because they couldn't touch anything else or... I mean, you think about something like rosary beads or, you know, something like that, that these religious practices along, you know, they're, they're, they're part of realizing that people need to be connected in some way, in a tactile way, um, whether we touch a plant or a, in a ritualistic way or a, um, some other way. We've got these items in our lives that are, that have significance and, you know, who knows, maybe there'd be a new, a new mark, probably, you know, everything, there's a market, no matter what you breathe and there's a market now, but, um, (laughs) you know, to think about ways that people can actually, um, you know, connect with these objects that are living or non-living inanimate. Catherine is right, of course. There is a market for everything. And in fact, there has been a market for touch-based objects for a long time. And when we come back, we are going to hear about some of the ways technology could replace touch and whether it will ever be as good as the real thing. But first, a quick break. Okay, so before I started working on this episode, I will admit that I did not spend a lot of time thinking about touch. I did see headlines about how people during COVID are touch-deprived, and my friends have mentioned how much they miss hugging. But personally, I actually hate being touched by people that I don't know really, really well. I hate hugs. 
So frankly, if we could just elbow bump forever, I would be totally happy with that. But the reality is that touch is really important, even for me, a cold-hearted hug hater. And if we had to go cold turkey on it, it would probably be pretty bad. And in the place of real touch, we would probably see a lot of money pumped into touch simulators, touch replicators, stuff that can scratch that itch, both literally and figuratively. And in fact, this idea of quantifying and replicating touch, it has a really long history. One of the things that was really revealing for me about this project was learning how far back this history goes. And there's this wave of um, experiments uh, gr growing in complexity from the mid-1800s uh, on. This is Dr. David Parisi, a professor at the College of Charleston and the author of a book called Archaeologies of Touch, Interfacing with Haptics from Electricity to Computing. In the 19th century, researchers realized that amidst all of the other research going on around the human body and how it interfaces with the world, they were leaving something out. We have a lot of data, we have a lot of studies, we have a lot of philosophical thinking about uh, sound, uh, about vision, uh, and we have this gap in knowledge around touch. There are a lot of reasons why touch was, and still is to this day, kind of ignored. I think uh, part of uh, the, the challenge concerns sort of a, a Christian theological distaste for the body, right? Like a, a desire to transcend, a notion that um, seeing is really the pathway to knowledge, that seeing is the path, pathway um, to the divine. Uh, so I think that that plays into a lot, these sort of cultural um, prohibitions uh, around touching. There's actually an amazing experiment called the Electrified Venus that we don't have time to talk about right now, but I am going to talk about on the bonus podcast this week. It involves kissing and wax and a man cranking a big electrical wheel, and it is bizarre and amazing. Um, there's that dangerous line between touch and desire, right? Between touch and, uh, and sexuality, and that dangerous line between touch and pain, too. And maybe that is one of the reasons why these 19th century researchers decided to come up with a new word to describe what they were studying. Something other than touch. So they come up with this new term, haptics. Um, they use it to mean the science of touch. Ah, uh, yes. Haptics. That does sound far less intimate. And in their study of haptics, researchers really wanted to understand just how sensitive our sense of touch could be. If you think about, say, sight, we talk about the various colors that humans can see, which wavelength, our depth of field, how fast we can process images. And these scientists had the same questions about touch. Uh, my favorite example from, uh, that I talk about in the book is uh, this, this apparatus for studying simultaneous touches. The apparatus for simultaneous touches looks a little bit like the machine from The Princess Bride. As you know, the concept of the suction pump is centuries old. Really, that's all this is, except that instead of sucking water, I'm sucking life. What they were trying to figure out in uh, the 1890s was uh, how many different places on the body you could discriminate uh, tactile contact between, right? So. Uh, if you are, uh, can you tell if you're being touched five different places at once? Can you tell if you're being touched six different places at once? Where is this sort of threshold for your tactile attentiveness? Uh, that's, a, I think, a fascinating question to think about. Uh, and the way that they spoke to this question, the way they, or they resolved it, was to build this frame that you would step into, 
uh, with all these little pockets of air around the frame that they could inflate using like a, a bellows, like what you would use to fan a fire. Uh, and they could inflate these bellows. And then they would ask the person in the frame, okay, like how many different points do you feel? And this research is actually really important for our future scenario, because if we are going to try and replicate touch, if we are going to try and invent some kind of glove or even like a bodysuit that makes it feel like, say, rain is falling on you or someone is hugging you or a cat is climbing into your lap, we need to understand how the human body and brain perceive touch. How much input of what kind can we actually parse? Many years after this apparatus for simultaneous touches, researchers tackled another angle of this question. This time, it was for the purposes of war. And uh, this was a device that was intended to be a replacement for Morse code or be a better Morse code. Uh, and what it, what it consisted of was five uh, vibrators, five motors positioned around the skin, uh, different spots in the skin around the torso, and each motor was capable of uh, three steps of duration. Um, so short, medium, long, and three steps of intensity, low, medium, and high. So nine signals per motor. And then uh, with those five different motors, you've got a 45 character language that they can assign um, you know, letters and numbers to. And the inventor of this system, Frank Geldard at the University of Virginia, had to figure out just how quickly radio receivers could read these touch messages. And it used a lot of that same data that they had generated, a lot of those same experimental methods from the 1800s. Um, so that question of, you know, how many motors can we use directly relates back to that question of how many different spots in the body can you perceive touch. Gildard imagined that maybe one day all radio operators could be trained on vibrates. Yes, that is what it was called. And the military could transmit messages much faster than with Morse code. Today, sadly, nobody is wearing a vibrates vest. But there have been devices that translate the visual into tactile sensations. In the 1960s, a researcher developed something called a tactile television. It's an array of, uh, of again, like little vibrating nubs that uh, the initial version was done uh, using a modified dentist chair. So someone would walk around with a video camera and point the video camera at an object. And it would, uh, this, this device, this tactile te television system would transcode um, that image into basically uh, an array of vibrating dots projected against the, uh, the subject's back. Now this is not HDTV here. We are talking about a pretty low resolution image, just a bunch of different dots. But the idea is that over time, your brain can learn to see these images more and more clearly. This notion that uh, you can translate your brain, if you sort of brute force these images, these tactile images into the brain, the brain will learn to uh, receive them, render them as, uh, as visual images uh, over time with training. So very similar to the Vibrates system, right? Like eventually with enough training, your body will uh, or your brain will acclimate to it. Around the same time as the tactile TV was being developed, another device hit the market that a lot of people actually miss. The device that's super cool that a lot of blind people are really bummed has disappeared from the landscape. It's a technology that, that kind of not, not many people know about anymore. It's called the Opticon. And it allows people to not just read words tactilely, but to 
um, you know, like look at maps and see paintings and, you know, it's a, it's a way to render visual imagery in a tactile way. And um, the people that used it, they just love this stuff. They're just so excited. Um, you know, they, they could, it could communicate in a really great way tactily. Unfortunately, the Opticon was discontinued in 1996, but there are blind folks who still use them today. And in our future world, we might all be using them to get a feel for the world around us. In fact, in the early 2000s, there was kind of a hybrid version of the Opticon and the tactile TV. So what they did was they, uh, they shrank it uh, and they made it uh, mountable in your mouth. Uh, and then it projects the, uh, it projects the image uh, onto your tongue. So your tongue is obviously has a very high density of touch receptors in it. Uh, much more uh, accurate, much more high resolution. These devices are still being developed today, mostly for blind people. But in our world of touch deprivation, could we also use them to simulate other inputs to make it feel like we are getting a hug? Could your tongue implant talk to sensors in your smart shirt and make you feel pressure here or there, even while maintaining a safe, non-touching distance? And there is, in fact, a huge industry investing a lot of money right now into these questions. Since the sort of re, uh, re-emergence of VR, uh, there's now been investment into uh, a new wave of investment into, uh, into body suits, um, into more robust, um, high-definition applications of haptics technology. So I'm thinking of uh, the company Haptex and their, uh, their, their uh, force feedback uh, tactile feedback glove, which is an incredibly complex, uh, incredibly nuanced piece of technology that, uh, in combination with a telerobotic system, uh, allows people to manipulate objects in real time across the world. And that sort of embodies this earlier dream um, you know, that we were talking about before, this earlier dream that you're going to be able to reach out and feel something across the world as if you were there. If we can't touch the world around us or our friends, we might revert to the next best thing, a simulated version where we can. I think one of the reasons that the promise is so endlessly appealing uh, is because it sounds really fantastic, right? Like it sounds really wonderful. Uh, and the I think part of the challenge is we constantly make this analogy to, uh, and it's an analogy I made a little while ago, we constantly make this analogy back to, um, to image and sound recording. So we think about this as just sort of the next step of technologizing the senses, the next step of uh, stimulating the senses using technology. And and so the promise, uh, we move very seamlessly from talking about technologizing uh, vision and technologizing hearing to technologizing touch. Um, So what can can this do if it ever realizes that promise? Uh, It makes travel sort of unnecessary, right? So if I can, uh, you know, don a VR bodysuit and feel like the wind is blowing against my skin and feel raindrops uh, uh, on my skin, or I can feel the caress of someone who's not near me. Uh, if I can feel those sensations very accurately, uh, all of a sudden the promise of the real world uh, sort of goes away and gets supplanted. In a world without touch, we would also have to reimagine entire industries. Massage parlors would have to turn to robots. Sex workers would have to reimagine their jobs as well, something that many of them have already had to do during the pandemic. How do you play contact sports without getting infected? 
How do doctors do their jobs? How do dancers choreograph differently when you can't make contact with one another? We often take touch, the physical way in which we interact with the world, for granted. Without it, we'd be in our own little bubbles. Even if we could hang out with our friends or go to a restaurant or resume the normal activities of the world, everything would be radically different. And Catherine thinks that maybe we are due for a resurgence of touch appreciation. I mean, the thing that's interesting about touch is it's seen as this this retro sense. It's kind of all seen as analog somehow. And, and yet, I think, honestly, if we look to the future, there's going to be a sense of touch that's going to, like, propel people into some other future that we might not know about yet, um, that we will revisit touch and rethink it and, you know, re-engage with it somehow, be more aware What happens if we really revalue touch? And will we when this pandemic subsides? Or will we go back to kind of forgetting about it? While working on this episode, I've become acutely aware of all of the stuff that I touch. My dog, my plants, my own face all the time. There's this little sculpture that I made that sits on my desk and it has little spikes on it. And sometimes I hold it and push the little spiky bits into my palm just to kind of see how it feels. I never thought about touch that much. And while I don't like hugs, it would be really, really terrible to lose it. Thankfully, this future is super unlikely, so go forth and touch stuff, you monsters. But also, please do wash your hands. Flash Forward is hosted by me, Rose Eblith, and produced by Julia Linas Goodman. The intro music is by Asura, and the outro music is by Hasselonia. The episode art is by Matt Lubchansky. The voices from the future this episode were played by Shara Kirby, Rachel Lara, Jake and Rory Teresina, Catherine Dolenz, and Rochelle Claiborne. The posters from our future were designed by the amazing Sar Rodenklau. You can find those on the website. If you have an idea for an episode, you can send us a note about it on Twitter, on Facebook, or by email at info at flashforwardpod.com. Julia and I love hearing your ideas. And if you think that you've spotted one of the little references that I've hidden in this episode, you can email us there too. If you are right, I will send you something cool. Um, If you want to talk about this episode and all the stuff you want to touch, um, or you want to talk about some other episode or just the future in general, you can join the Facebook group. Just search Flash Forward Podcast on Facebook and ask to join. There is one question that you have to answer. It's incredibly easy, um, but I just want to make sure that you are in the right place and actually listen to the show. And if you want to support Flash Forward, that would be incredible. The show is largely supported by direct donations from listeners. Um, if you want to do that, you can go to flashforwardpod.com support for more about how to give. Um, If that is not in the cards for you, you can head to Apple Podcasts and leave a nice review or just tell a friend about the show. Uh, Any friend, even an enemy, tell an enemy about the show. doesn't really matter. Um, Word of mouth is how most podcasts get found. So um, anybody you tell, I will be greatly thankful for. Okay, that's all for this future. Come back next time and we'll travel to a new one.